1: of the Roden Fellows, handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Kyla Wright from
2: Hampton University.
3: I'm Paul Holston from Howard University.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm coming to you from New York City, and uh, our guest today is the Arizona Cardinals wide receiver, Chad Williams, the great Chad Williams. Hey Chad, welcome to the show. <laughs> Not the great yet.
0: Yeah, How well, you doing, man? How it, you
1: doing? It's all good. Well, but like this. You were great last year this time you were great. <laughs> right? You had finished your college.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now now you're at, you, you climbed one mountain. Now you're at the foot of another yeah. mountain. <laughs> yeah,
4: we gotta go from the bottom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well well first things first, man. First of all, congratulations on making the squad. And, thank and, you, thank you. Making the NFL I mean, I know that was a huge, huge because you're you're drafted, you're a third round pick out of Grambling. Tell me what it was like to get the call and to finally get into the league.
4: Well, man, it was it was amazing, man. Because you know it's something, something that you've always prayed for. think something that you've watched since you was a child, and you was like, and you began to be like, man, I wish you know maybe one day that I can be amongst those guys and be a part of that special. Uh, one or two percent of the best guys in the world to play the game, you know, and uh, you know, going through high school and college has all the statistics saying about how um, only, the, only the only two percent of guys that actually play the game, one or two percent of the guys that actually play the game, uh, actually go to the NFL, and and you know that that's just that was just something really big for me, and I just thank God for it because. You know, God didn't have to do this for me, but you know, He looked He looked for me and, and He did it. And man, it's just it's just so big, and, and it also gives gives all the guys around me uh, hope. You know, that it don't matter where you come from, if you just put in the work and put in the time, it, it can happen.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about that, man. I, I a couple, of, you said something really fascinating in that statement about the one or two percent. You know, uh, only one or two percent play professional at <laughs> any professional sport. So how did you get to be the one or two percent that actually made it?
4: I think it's just all the time and the work I put into the game and my my college high school high school college career. I did I, I was all about football and, and sports. I just did I did everything uh on the field with the coaches but I also did a lot of things on my own. Uh Saturday mor Saturday nights, Saturday mornings, Sunday nights, Sunday mornings mm. uh summer summer workouts. You know just just everything pre- prepping and, and 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 preparing my craft for the next upcoming season every year and I felt like I just got better and better. And I'm still learning.
1: Yeah. So you almost had plan A. There's no plan B, plan A.
4: Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Where were you born? Where did you go to high school?
4: I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay. And I went to uh, Madison Preparatory Academy in Baton Rouge. Oh,
1: okay. Why didn't you go to Southern? You went, to, you uh, went, to, you went right Southern. to the enemy.
4: Yes. Southern uh, didn't give me a scholarship. LSU didn't give me a scholarship. I only have one scholarship from Grambling. So, you know, nobody. And, and I lived I lived maybe nine minutes. Uh, nah, I lived maybe... 12 minutes from LSU and about five minutes from Southern. Nobody nobody came to me.
1: Wow. Now, why is that? Is that because you were a late bloomer, because of the high school? I mean, what
4: uh, – as you high look school, back my on it. My high school had just opened in uh, 2010, so we were a new high school, and the football program wasn't really that good. We were a big basketball school, so, you know, everybody thrived on basketball, so it's it's kind of like – Duke got this kid, you know, Duke, you like Duke, that's a basketball school, you know. So we were kind of like that basketball school and that overlooked the football team.
1: Mm. Yeah, you played your first NFL game last week, right? Against uh Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. You began the the season on the on the on the roster, but you didn't I guess you didn't play in the first game. But what was it like? Yeah, I didn't. To, yeah, yeah, what was it like to to get the nod and to realize that you were going to you were going to play?
4: Man, it's amazing, man. You you you're on the field competing against guys you watched growing up. You're also playing with guys that you admire growing up. Some of the best atmospheres that you're ever going to see in, a, mm. in the game of football. Loudest fans. You know, it's so much adrenaline and, and passion that go into the game. So, man, it, it was great being actually to be out there. And I'm looking forward to many more to come, you know.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, what was it like physically for, for the time you, I, I guess, when did you know that you were going to play? And did your mindset change when you knew that you were going to uh, you were going to play?
4: Um I kind of keep the same mindset day in day out just to just to make everyday best. I take it one day at a time. Uh not not looking forward, you know, you look at the you look forward at un, at another hurdle you 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 trip over the one you are jumping over right now. So, uh-huh. you know, we just take things day by day and we try to win every day and stack good days on top of good days, you know.
1: Uh-huh. I mean, you, and you 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 went up against uh I think Patrick Peters almost everyday in practice. Uh yeah. you get to talk about somebody you've been watching since you were I guess, I don't know, what, a freshman maybe, even before that? You know, you go you go from grambling to training camp, and you got all this stuff on your mind. Am I good enough? Here are these guys from all these quote-unquote big schools. Uh, what were some of the things that began to open your eyes when you kind of realized that you could compete?
4: Uh, nothing opened my eyes. I always knew I could compete. Mm-hmm. That's just how I've been my whole life. I don't care where I came from, where you came from, who you are. You know, it's a lot of guys from a lot of big schools. But, man, your school don't define you. You do. Yeah. Uh, your, your conference don't define you. You do. Because I've met a lot of guys at this level who has been productive from Division II schools mm-hmm. or, you know, it, but a lot of coaches always say, it don't matter how you got here. You're here and everybody just can play, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're on this level, you can play. Yeah. So. Uh, confidence level, confidence were never, was never it's never an issue. But referring to the things you said about uh, Patrick Patrick Peterson, yeah, I grew up I grew up watching him in Baton Rouge. Um, mm. I look up to him, and, and as of me going going against him in practice, uh, he he just makes me better, man. Because uh, it's, it's you, know, you you can mark these words. There's nobody, there's no cornerback in the league that does it like him. He's the best mm. best corner in the league, hands down, mm. hands down. And I feel like going against him every day. He may, he makes me so much better. You know, uh, things that I that I try to get away with. Uh, he 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 shows me mm. by me by by beating me on, on on some things and making me be like, man, I have to fix that. You know, so mm. it, it's just mm. you know, Pat Pat'll make you better going against him. You know, and it's very good competition. He's gonna come every day.
1: What 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 makes a great cornerback in the NFL? In other words, you had a, you had a great career, and particularly you had a great senior year at Grambling, and so you go to mm. camp, and then automatically I imagine there's a whole stuff in your bag of tricks that you immediately have to throw out because it just doesn't work. Yeah. What was sort of the takeaway in the camp between a pro cornerback and a pro wide receiver and sort of a rookie coming in?
4: Man, pro cornerback, they do things different. You find some of them that are sleepers, that kind of fall asleep and get lazy on their craft. But the the vast majority of those guys, man, they're, they're, they're competitors. study the game. They they work their craft day in and day out so Everything is 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 a reaction to him. Like sometimes Pat makes very good plays. I don't even realize if he knows he made a good play. He's just reacting to his 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 level of play, and his level of play is high, mm. higher than most guys. You know, so when, when he makes those plays, everybody's like, "Wow!" But he's just like, "That's what he do. Like his protocol. You know, he worked on it, he trained with it, and 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 he he prepped for those moments, and and, and that's why he's so good. You know."
1: Mm. So so take us to to last Sunday. You know, you caught I think you caught, caught one pass for fifteen yards. Uh, yeah, it was right. uh it
4: was a back shoulder back, a back shoulder fade.
1: Mm. Did you keep the ball? Uh no, I
4: didn't keep it. I didn't <laughs> keep
1: it. Come on, man, why not? No, I didn't keep it, it. I'm gonna
4: keep this. I'm gonna keep this. I'll, I'll keep the touchdown ball. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you get that with back to the crowd. That's yeah. the fun. But how did it feel though? I mean, I guess you don't think about it in the moment. Um but yeah. after the game, did you kind of did you get calls from people? Did you get you know any type of texts or anything?
4: Uh yeah, a couple of texts from from my family just telling me how they're rooting for me and uh they watched the game, congrats on our win and stuff like that. But you know I just I, li- I like to stay grounded. Uh, my family keeps me uplifted and everything is cool. You know.
1: Hmm. I, I work with six students from six HBCUs, and we spoke to Larry Donnell, who, yeah. who was in the, who was at the um, Ravens camp? And he was mm-hmm. talking about the differences between facilities and all that kind of stuff between coming from college and into the NFL. And I was wondering what it was like for you. I mean, particularly Grambling, because I think you may have been on the 2013 team. That, yeah, I that, was. that boycotted the like, yeah, Jackson State game. Yeah. So just tell me about the, the, the facilities and just the everything going from college to the NFL and specifically uh, it, it, Grambling it, it, it's to a, the NFL.
4: It's a, it's a, it's a real big difference. Uh, you know, we had basic training room, uh hot uh cold tubs, the metal cold tubs, but now you know, we have walk in pools, steam rooms, saunas, we have the, the big the big whirlpool, the hot tub, you know, um like state state of the art training facility. You know, I, I sometimes just feel like home. I just be up here all day just pampering, <laughs> doing things to my body, you know, just just chilling out, you know, because it's so comfortable. So it's it's a really big difference from um, our facility to these facilities, these are state-of-the-art.
1: Did, did you, in 2013, did you did you play an active part? Uh, you, you were, what, a freshman?
4: Yeah, I was only a freshman. A freshman.
1: So, just when you think back on that, um, did you help bring about some change? Because I know that the facilities now, I mean, what, you guys won a championship your, 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 yeah. your senior year. Do you think that you were part of a change, of helping to bring about change at Grambling?
4: Oh yeah, I actually do feel like I was a part of that.
1: I mean, in what way? I mean, what I know as a freshman, you were probably you're a freshman, so you don't want to be the lead. You know, yeah, you don't want to be, but but what?
4: Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying with just with the with the boycott. I'm saying with with everything uh, from years to grow. You know. Uh, me and more guys doing good to, to actually get scouts to come through and stop by and want to come to Gremlin and see the kids that's there. That's, we're, we're we we're pushing that and that's going to be there for the, the guys to come in the future, you know. They're going to be like, yeah, Gremlin produced pretty good athletes, let's stop by, you know, for, for scouts. So I feel like I was a part of change, you know. People look at Gremlin different, you know. We had like two losing seasons my freshman year and the year before I got there, we went like 1-11, so that that all changed. I, I feel like I was part of the change to bring that bring that Grambling tradition back. You
1: know. Yeah, I was really proud of you guys too, man. I was proud of you and, and and the team itself because, you know, that that was at a time when the Northwestern players were everybody was talking, but you guys didn't talk. You know, you did something and you brought attention to something. And because you know, when I was at Morgan, Grambling always you know set you guys sort of were a standard bearer. Yeah, you carried the flag. Yeah, uh, and. Yeah. It was sad to see things yeah, but things you know, things evolve but it's just to kind of put the period on that point, it's great for you to look back and know that you were part of of an evolution of bringing a, a university back to where it it, yeah. it should have been.
4: Yeah. yeah. Hey hey guys, man. It, it was great talking to you guys. We have meetings you <laughs> I have to shower. Okay. And, and get up with everything. Hey, hey,
1: hey, I I guess it's been uh, Chad, well, Hey, Chad! Thank you so much, man, and and best of luck. This right, week. Guys, are you, are you, you play, are you playing this week?
4: Yeah, yeah, I am. Be on the lookout for me. I
1: will keep that touchdown pass. All right, thanks, man. All right, all right. Bye-bye. <laughs> if you're just now tuning in. You're listening to HBCU 468. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm here with Kyler Wright and Paul Holston. We're switching gears from Chad Williams of uh, the Arizona Cardinals and Grambling State University to the state of HBCUs. The White House has just named Jonathan Holyfield as a new leader of its HBCU initiative, and there have been a lot of mixed reactions. Johnny C. Taylor Jr., is the president and CEO of the Third Good Marshall College Fund, and he's here to help us make heads or tails of this selection. Welcome to the show, Johnny. Thanks so much for being on.
0: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, man. And, uh, but listen, before we talk about uh, some of the other issues, just tell us a little bit about the Third Good Marshall College Fund. Just what it what it is and what does it do for HBCUs?
0: So there are, are really two advocacy organizations, as they call them, in the HBCU space. One is the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, and we represent the publicly supported HBCUs, which means all of the state institutions plus Howard University, and I know I have advice on my phone, and they to do. <laughs> <laughs> and Tuskegee University, who, although those are two private institutions, they're publicly supported, and therefore we represent all of our publicly supported schools. Some 47 schools, 300,000 students in 23 states and the United States Virgin Islands, as well as the District of Columbia. So 80% of all HBCU students are on TMCF member school campuses, and there's another wonderful organization, UNCF, the United Negro College Fund, that represents most of the private HBCUs. But we have the public HBCUs. And so we do everything that you can imagine, including advocating for HBCUs on Capitol Hill and in state legislatures. We provide capacity building to our institutions, scholarships and programs to our students. And we're one of the, in fact, the only organization that exclusively represents HBCUs. Our money only goes to HBCU undergraduate students.
1: The underlying debate around HBCUs is sort of, what's the point? You know, why, why do we still need them? And I think that uh, I heard you a couple of months ago speaking uh, uh, at the Boulay uh, in Washington, D.C., and you, you had a, a startling figure uh, as of 2014, 15, only 8 percent of African-American students are enrolled at HBCUs. How do you answer that when people are saying, well, what's the point? What's what's the reason? Why do they still? Why do we still need them? Why do they still exist?
0: Well, what I would say is uh, uh, the wonderful thing about the higher education landscape in America is that you have options, mm-hmm. and the options range from people who women who only want to attend single sex institutions, all women's schools to schools that are majority black to schools that are more comfortable for Hispanic students to majority institutions to privates to publics to you know that is the beauty of our system is that we have choices in our higher ed uh, uh, landscape and HBCUs provide an option for students who who desire to be educated in an environment where they are the majority. And so there's there's to me it's a sense it's sort of a senseless argument to say these schools shouldn't exist. They should exist as long as there are students who want to attend and that they are graduating students and putting them into meaningful jobs and careers post graduation. That's why they should exist. It's important. It's the HBCUs are not perfect for every black student. And that's why we are seeing that. And frankly, I I oftentimes use this to say, you know, you have to be careful what you pray for. When we're out saying, Uh, you know, pushing Georgetown to be more diverse in terms of faculty and staff, or the University of Missouri, when the black students at the University of Missouri are saying, we want you to be more diverse, where do you think they're getting these students from? They're going to get them, in the case of Georgetown, from Howard. In the case of University of Missouri, they're going to pull them from our schools, Lincoln University in, in, in Missouri, as well as Harris Stowe in Missouri. So, in our effort to put pressure on these institutions to be more diverse, you have to be careful what you pray for. They are becoming better at it because we have, as a society, pressured these institutions into being more diverse.
2: Okay, Mr. Taylor, I have a question. This is a Kyla Wright from Hampton University. So as we know, Mr. Holyfield has a long list of accomplishments. He's the co-founder of a consultant agency that deals with economic development. He's written about how to create prosperity for Americans and even established a STEM education program. But he didn't attend an HCCU and doesn't seem to have ever worked in higher education. So we were wondering why you applaud this choice.
0: Well, uh, let me say this. At at some and. One has to really, and I'm not uncomfortable with this. I want to tell you why I, I, my position is The administration, like every other administration, is free to choose and appoint who it wants to do the work that it does. I, for example, was never a big fan. I didn't think initially that Arne Duncan, for example, who was selected to be the Secretary of Education for President Obama. Who held a bachelor's degree and as we know you have to have a master's degree to be a middle school guidance counselor uh, or principal um, we, there are many who argued that uh, secretary Duncan was unqualified I disagreed with them then Would I have wanted someone who was more steeped in higher education? Of course, ideally. But I respected that the president of the United States has to have the right to appoint people in the positions with the qualifications that he or she deems are appropriate. I feel the same way now, no more than I was going around saying Arne Duncan is somehow unqualified and should not be. You know, Remember, most of the federal education dollars are spent in higher education. Arne Duncan, as I pointed out, had a bachelor's degree and had never worked in higher education. He came from Chicago public schools. Uh, if we're willing to give him a chance, which I thought was appropriate, and we did, then in this case, particularly with an African-American, I'm not prepared to say he is unqualified. That just doesn't make sense to me. He knows what his charge is. It's dictated very clearly by the executive order, and we have to give this brother an opportunity to do his job. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, but
1: even even in the Obama White House, Uh, I think there was a there was I forget the name of the the person who had this position, this liaison. But there were there were there were some 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 complaints from HBCUs that even the Obama White House was kind of dragging its feet.
0: Oh, no, the community did not was not particularly excited about the people who held, and a number of the people, there were frankly two, now three, directors. John Wilson was the initial head of the White House Initiative on HBCUs, and then it was followed up by a gentleman who, who since deceased, George Cooper, and then Ivory Tolson from Howard. And all of those folks had their detractors and had people who would argue that for this reason or the other, they didn't um, represent the HBCU space or couldn't properly. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and try to defend Mr. Hollisfield's background because, and I've said this to him, he has had limited involvement and engagement with HBCUs. What I will say is the president has the right to appoint whomever he chooses to appoint. He did. And now it's up to us to figure out how to make him successful because the guy's going to be there for four and perhaps eight years.
3: Mm. Mm. Hey, Mr. Taylor, this is Paul Holston from Howard. So to follow up um, on what we were just discussing, so with the new leader in the White House, has anything changed, you feel, about the way HBCUs work with the White House? I mean, of course, like we had, you know, President Trump signed that executive order. Um, the HBCU conference week just concluded. I know HBCU 9 Unity Week is coming up as well. Um, but do you feel, you know, with you being in a position for a numerous amount of years, has things sort of changed in the way HPC works in, with this administration, or is it beginning to, as opposed to the Obama administration?
0: Well, like if we were being objective um, about mm-hmm. this, these first seven or eight months with the Trump administration, at the end of the day, have been better. We have had more engagement and recognition by the White House than we did in the first seven or eight months. So we have to compare apples to apples. You can't take eight years mm-hmm. of the Obama presidency and compare it to eight months of the Trump of presidency. Um, we, we, for example, over an eight-year period, and this is not to deal in the past because it's not worth it, but for eight years we tried to convene all of the HBCU presidents in the White House when President Obama was president. Did not occur. We made repeated requests in writing to Valerie Jarrett, to the White House, to anyone who would listen, and we were never afforded that opportunity. People Mm -hmm. talked about us on an article the other day that, well, President Trump didn't show up to HBCU week. Well, in eight years, President Obama didn't show up to HBCU week either. So Mm -hmm. you know, while people are wanting to be critical, what I will say is, A, we've been invited to the White House twice. And no, nothing has happened substantively yet other than one of our requests, that is that we, be in, uh, we take this position, the White House director, Executive Director, and bring it to the actual White House and out of the Department of Education. That has occurred, and we as a community requested that. That's different because we also requested it in the past, and this is the first time that it's happened. We saw the federal budget go through. The education budget, the President's proposed budget, was cut by 13.9%. The HBCU line was kept flat. Hmm. In my mind, you could, if you wanted to look at a cut, you could. In fact, it would have been quite reasonable to say, I'm going to do an across the board cut. We sought out and received protection of the Title III line for HBCUs. Howard's. Yeah, one, we remained on funds. You, mm-hmm. remain, you kept your funding. So, you yep. know, this is a president and a Republican Congress, Republican led Congress, that if they were as hostile as people make them to be, could have very well cut Howard Special Appropriation and cut Title III. That has not occurred. But I want to be clear. This is not to – no one should walk away and say, Johnny Taylor said everything's hunky-dory and things are wonderful, da-da-da. No. I'm saying this is the beginning. It's eight months in. We have seen year-round Pell restored by this Congress, a Republican-led Congress. We've seen the White House put year-round Pell into its 2018 budget, which did not occur in the past seven years of the eight years. There are some reasons for us not to be so negative, let me say it differently, and I'm not hearing some of that.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are some great points to point out. Let me ask you a question. In an in a, in a ideal world, Johnny, where would you like to see HBCUs and their relationship with the government uh, and society at large, but in, in an ideal world?
0: You know, this is a wonderful question. What what I would like to see in sort of utopia mm-hmm. is that HBCUs will stand on their own in terms of respect from the rest of the, the, the world, the rest of America, as do... You know, all women's schools. When people talk about Smith, you know, uh, majority all women's private college, they, they hold it in very high regard. There's no negativity associated with the fact that they are a single uh, gender school. It is, or, or Spellman, frankly. When you think about an HBCU, people think very, very highly of Spellman. And it's not because it's a women's school that it happens to be a darn good women's school, but it is most importantly a wonderful academic institution. That's what I want people to think of when they think of HBCUs, is that they are great institutions who enroll students, graduate students, put them into good jobs, and they happen to serve a largely African-American population.
3: Just to follow up with that question, you know, in regards to you know, relationship with government and society at large, as you know, former FBI Director James Comey came to Howard as a keynote speaker for our opening convocation. And, of course, if you haven't seen it on Twitter, there's a, been a lot of student activism involved with sort of the political discourse at the White House and at HBCUs. From your perspective, working with Thurgood Marshall Fund, do you feel that student activism somewhat affects the advocacy of raising funds at black colleges?
0: Wow. Heavy, heavy question. Let me start with, I applaud, literally applaud student activism. And frankly, there's some really smart, brilliant, new thinking occurring on college campuses. And and Howard's known for what it does. And all of our HBCUs, by the way, it's not limited to Howard, have an activist culture. What I would say to you, to get to your specific question, though, around the potential impact of stakeholders uh, who are non HBCU alumni, students, lovers, the mm-hmm. idea is you, we have to be very careful when you cross that line that says we are intolerant of other views. So I will tell you, activism is good, but you've got to be willing to have a voice whenever your community is under attack. And I will submit to you that any attacks to HBCUs didn't just start seven months ago. It's 2012, the Obama administration made a change unilaterally, had nothing to do with Congress, but unilaterally changed the guidelines for student eligibility for Parent PLUS loans. We sent 28,000 28, HBCU students home in the middle of the semester mm. because of mm. a unilateral change. Mm. The TMCF, UNCF, NAFIO, all of the advocacy organizations went to the Obama administration and said, grandfather of the kids who are already in school, it is ridiculous that you would send students home with debt and without a degree because you changed the rules midterm. Where were the activist students on HBCU campuses? Mm-hmm. And this directly impacted right. them.
1: Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask you a question. Okay. Too. I, this sort of gets along that line in a way. Um, so you you chose to attend uh, what what the students call PWI. I had not heard that till I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all, but it's no so,
3: disrespect. Good. I love I love all PWI. No, no,
1: no, no, no. Well, here is a question: Not everybody black thinks that you know HBCUs are so great, or else they would have attended one. Sometimes there seems to be this hostility, and 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 again, it's, it's a little it's complicated was
0: complex well you know it's i can think that an institution is great but not great for me okay. so uh, for an example i looked at a number of schools when i was uh, considering i looked at florida a m i looked at the university of miami i also looked at the university of virginia i also looked at uh, pepperdine university i looked at a number of schools the fact that i didn't choose to go to pepperdine didn't mean that i think thought that there was something wrong with pepperdine right. i just felt that with all of the factors Proximity, geographic proximity to my home, scholarship, what types of debt I'd have to take or not based upon what school I attended, the major that I wanted to participate in. There were all of these factors. Going to choosing a school is a very personal decision. Mm -hmm. And when you choose one, it's not at all, and it can't be construed as I think the other schools are somehow sub. It just means that institution worked for me. Mm -hmm. In the instance of the University of Miami, it made sense for me. And I had a wonderful time. My sister, by comparison, thought Florida A&M University, Rattlers, mm-hmm. made sense for her. Mm-hmm. My middle sister went to Albany State. Okay. So everyone chose what worked for them. And it goes back to my initial point. That's the beauty of the American higher education system is that there are choices. Mm-hmm. And one can pick those and not, be, uh, not for it not to be perceived as as some sort of indictment of the schools that you didn't choose. I right. think HBCUs are wonderful. I am more passionate, give more money, and give more time than a lot of HBCU graduates. So I take quite a, you know, when I'm challenged on that, it really bothers me because I said the fact that you went there, graduated, and then haven't given back, haven't participated, haven't helped another kid go to an HBCU is, um, is, is a sad story. So, you know, look at the man in the mirror before you talk to me.
1: Right. One of the big issues, you know, we talk about the White House and this, this administration, that administration. At the end of the day, you're really going to have to help yourself. If you're, if you're an HBCU institution, um, and I remember Arthur Ashe had said this a while back. Uh, And he went to UCLA and was, you know, but he was saying, you know, you guys have, you know, you're really going to have to find a way to work together. And it seems like that's the big challenge.
0: Yeah. We, I have a line that's grammatically incorrect, admittedly, but I say only us can save us. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not grammatically correct by the way, but the idea is our community has to work together to save our institutions. Ultimately, if you want students to Consider and attend HBCUs and we got to make them competitive because every parent wants their kid to have the best opportunity Um, One of the Obama daughters, you know, is enrolling in Harvard for the first time this year this fall Mm -hmm. I dare say you she did not visit an HBCU when considering her colleges Mm -hmm. So is that to suggest that you know, Mr. Obama and Mrs. Obama are Anti-HBCU no, it means that they made a decision To have their kid go to the school that works best for that kid. Now would I have liked uh, for them to have visited an HBCU campus, for the daughter to have toured one of our campuses just as she toured Columbia and Stanford and Harvard, et cetera, yes. Mm -hmm. Because I think that message is to Spelman, for example, just to have visited one of the campuses and given us a shot. That's where I have a struggle with our people in our community when you don't even consider an HBCU. That's what you all should be protesting. If you want to be angry about something, be angry about the fact that the most powerful African American man and woman on the globe didn't think it appropriate to take their kid to come at least visit and consider an HBCU.
3: I can even say for myself that prior to me coming to Howard I was in the military, but me coming from South Carolina, I knew nothing what HBC I knew nothing about what H B C U even stood for. It wasn't until I had mentors in the in the military that were HBCU alum that told me, hey, instead of considering, you know, some of these PWIs, at least visit some of the HBCUs. And so I have to thank them, you know, for those alums for even introducing HBCU to me because had it not been there, I wouldn't be a Howard today.
0: And our schools Dang. have to do a better job. Yeah. I have to acknowledge that. Our schools have to do a better job of telling the story, reaching out. You can't rely and assume that every black kid knows what an HBCU is. You've got to reach yeah. out to them because the majority institutions are reaching out to them, advertising to them as early as 9th and 10th grade. So to mm-hmm. think that Spellman doesn't have to pursue black women because all black girls should know that Spellman exists is a little naive. Right.
2: Yeah, I experienced that with my high school as well. They didn't advertise HBCUs us. they strictly advertised PWIs. I'm from Detroit, so they just harped on University of Michigan and Michigan State for the most part, but we didn't really get the opportunity to hear about HBCUs. I only heard about HBCUs because I had mentors from HBCUs, and my church sponsored a black college tour every year, so that was how I got my exposure.
0: That's the challenge. It's both a blessing and a curse. You have put pressure on, in the case of Michigan, University of Michigan and Michigan State, to increase its diversity. So they're doing what we ask them to do, and that is to increase their outreach to mm-hmm. students like you. And that creates some real competitive a threat to HBCUs when the majority institutions are taking affirmative steps to, to reach out and try to find black kids and, and enroll them.
2: You seem very passionate about, you know, HBCUs and the influence on the African-American community. So how would you really characterize your specific influence on this TMCF, or the of Marshall College Fund?
0: Yeah, I think it's such a – someone actually just asked me that same question because, <laughs> as you all know, I'm, I'm taking a new role. I'll be leaving the mm-hmm. HBCU space as a full-time person, as the CEO, but will remain on the TMCF board and will always be a major donor and, and uh, employer of HBCU graduates. Hopefully, what I've left in terms of an influence is making people who hadn't thought about HBCUs understand what HBCUs are. And these people, not just necessarily black folks, I'm talking about making major employers. We signed a 40 plus million dollar deal with Apple uh, to increase the number of HBCU, not diverse, not people of color, not minority, but HBCU students working at Apple. Uh, We signed a Big deal with Coke Industries, $26 million. These are people who might not otherwise think about HBCUs. And we're saying we have really talented people who are interested. We also have partnered with the Republican Party. You know, in the past, we've, you know, my predecessors focused almost exclusively on courting uh, members of Congress who were Democrats. And while we think we need to do that, we know we need to do that, we also must reach across the aisle Most don't appreciate that the majority of HBCUs are located in Republican districts, congressional districts, the majority. Mm. So the notion that you can want more federal funding when the Republicans are in control and not talk to them is not smart. (laughs) <laughs> so what I've tried to do is to bring a message of opening up, extending to people who would otherwise not think about HBCUs or have reason to think about HBCUs, opening up and, and making them know more about who we are, what our contributions are, and not to make them feel so badly when they don't know. Someone asked me the other day, they were, they were actually ridiculing a member of Congress who didn't know what an HBCU was. I said, well, what if you turn to you and said, name one Jewish school? Right, we right. you don't know one, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, people know what they know, right. and I use that as an opportunity to educate them on what HBCUs are and our contributions, as opposed to judging them for not knowing.
1: Hey, John, I know you got to to run. Um, our guest has been uh, Johnny C. Taylor Jr., who's the president and CEO of the Third Good Marshall College Fund. I think that these complexities that you've just spoke about, whether it's Kaepernick and the flag or whether it's the, multi- the, the multiple uh, uh, platforms uh, uh, of black folks who've gone to a variety of schools, predominantly white, predominantly black, and, and we feel a lot of different ways. It seems like what we have not done, there has not been an apparatus probably for 25 years, 30, to somehow get us all under one roof and just have our own sort of oh, in- intellectual civil war. So we can kind of really just duke it out and say, listen, we're not going to leave this room until we kind of come up with the thing. What is it like to be black in 2017?
0: The lack of authentic black leadership. Mm -hmm. And by the way, authentic is not a judgment. Like, you know, do you wear your hair in a certain way? Do you speak a certain way? Did you go to a certain school? But the thing that keeps me up at night is I don't I can't point to a person or a group of people and say, this is our black leadership. Mm.
3: Well, I do partly agree with what you said, Mr. Taylor. I feel like uh, as millennials, I think we're going into a leaderless type of movement to where we're not necessarily, you know, looking for that great black hope to, you know, like Martin Luther King or Huey P. Newton. I think there's many leaders among us to where we don't necessarily have to you know, aim for that one person. But I do partly agree because there still needs to be some type of organization to it in terms of moving it forward. Because sometimes too many leaders it gets miscombobulated as you've probably seen in the last couple of years with different movements that have gone on and off.
0: I don't think it's about a leader. That's why I said leadership. Mm. So it's the collective sense, to your point, putting us all together and saying, you know, sometimes it's good cop, bad cop. There were times back in the yeah. civil rights movement where Martin Luther King would sit in a room and say, I'm going to do this, and Malcolm X would say, I'm going to take this position because they, but it was all strategic. Right. This was not, you know, right. people. And they going, didn't do
3: it by oh, themselves either.
0: That's right. And you had other groups all, you know, kind of working together, but it was a strategy. And I think that's the point that we we started with Brother Roden. that this is about figuring out how to at least get us going generally in the same direction. We may get there in different ways, but we at least have a common focus.
1: Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Tony Chow and Martin O'Nabu are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as all day. What are those? And morning roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app join us next week for another HBCU podcast and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week everybody.